This is a classic because it is the most roller coaster verse play I have ever read. This is a classic because it tells the story of a well-rounded queen who's just looking to do the best for her country. This is a classic because it is such a nuanced look at what is inside our hearts. This is our history. This is our legacy. Hello, and welcome to This is a Classic, the Expand the Canon Theater podcast. We're your hosts, Emily Lyon, Artistic Director of Hedgepig Ensemble Theater. And me, Shannon Corinthian, Director of Production for Hedgepig. Expand the Canon is a program of Hedgepig Ensemble, a Brooklyn-based company that reimagines the classics, creating a legacy of storytelling with gender equity at its core. Today, we are diving into Catherine Bernard's Laudamia, Queen of Epirus, from the Expand the Canon list, available at expandthecanon.com. little content warning, we will be discussing murder and physical violence during this episode. If you were to go to our website, and you should, what is our pitch for this play, Emily? If you're looking to blend the political intrigue of Shakespeare's histories with the visceral drama of a Greek tragedy, consider Catherine Bernard's tight verse play featuring a moral yet conflicted queen trapped in a love quadrangle. Caught between her heart and her sense of place, Laodamia, the queen of Epirus, has always lived a life of self-sacrifice until she falls in love with her sister's betrothed. Set against the backdrop of an impending revolution, this tragic love story is as much about deep sisterly bonds as it is about political intrigue. As her feelings conflict with the world's expectations and the whole court is thrown into chaos, Laudamia must decide whether to follow her heart or her sense of duty. Tense, vibrant, and a true vehicle for a powerhouse female actor, this play will keep you in suspense until the last climactic second. Dum, dum. Let's dive into this plot a little bit because it sounds real yes. exciting. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Very excited. Um, so Laodamia is a queen in need of a husband because patriarchy. <laughs> because why not? Well, also because her dad says so, right? Right. Which is double patriarchy. <laughs> right. Um, she's been promised to Atale of the Aetolians, who's not really a nice man, but it's out of her duty to her country to bring peace to the land. Um, her country has been at war and in conflict with his, and this was the way to usher a time of peace. However, Laodamia is in love with Gelong, who's a foreigner who's lived in Epirus for a long time, and he's fought for the country. But Gelon is in love with Nereus, who is Laodamia's sister. So it's a bit, um, this is what I like to say, it's a bit midsummery without the comedy because it's high stakes drama here. Oh, yeah. So out of love and respect for her sister, Laodamia hides her feelings for Gelon and is resolved to marry Atale. You know, she's like, I'm going to do this because I'm a queen. I have to, you know, I am bigger than, if you've watched The Crown, you understand that a queen is her country. She's more than just her person. It's like part of a treaty or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That she's like legit official documents yeah 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 it's so. like not just just duty it's Sad also face. like it's a signed contract but atale is murdered and now war is at the doors of a pyrus 
as his country seeks revenge and retribution for the murder because it's assumed that it was a murder done by the people of Epirus. Yeah, because they had, they were like winning the war or mm-hmm. something, but he was going to come marry her and then suddenly he's just like suddenly dead the day before they get married all suspicious a little bit suspicious especially because like no one liked him (laughs) (laughs) well probably his people liked him but yeah definitely no one no one on our side no one in Epirus was like sounds great yeah and it does come out come up as like quite a shock it's one of the first things we learn like in the first 10 page it's like Atale this whole thing is set up right and then it's like Atale is dead and we're like oh god what's happening yeah, this is the first like big turn on the roller coaster. Well, no, it was maybe the second one because I think the first one is like Laudamia being like, "Guess what? I'm in love with Galen." Oh shit! Sure. And you're like, "What?" Sure, sure, sure. And then Atali's dead, and you're like, "What?" Atali dies. Yeah, ta ta ta. Twist, plot twist. Um, the people of Epirus are terrified, and in their fear, not just the people, but also the court. Everyone in Epirus is terrified, and they're seeking a strong leader, and that leader cannot just be their queen, who has been a, you know, a emblem of strength throughout her reign. But no, she needs a strong man at her side. And everyone believes that man should be Gelon. They want Laodamia to marry Gelon. That's the popular vote. He's been fighting for the country. It's always kind of like the underdog thing. Like he didn't come from their country, but oh, he's yeah. this Italian in Greece who's really fought for them and who believes in their country. And yeah, and he's handsome and strong. So why mm. not? But at the same time, saw straight a prince of Epirus. He declares his love for Laodamia and wants to marry her both out of love so he says but mainly to social climb he's also one of those people that no one really likes yeah yeah he's like there because he's you know of noble blood and stuff but he's clearly just a little sneaky and snaky sneaky and snaky guys um he's a little peeve that a foreigner has caught the eye of the queen and so he starts trouble in between the queen her sister and gelon and the people of Epirus. like he's not he's kind of like I mean, first, he's like, I will get her to love me because it makes more sense for the country to be ruled by two Grecian people, blah, blah, blah. And then it turns into a bit of like, if I can't have her, no one can type of thing. It's a weird. Mm -hmm. And also, doesn't he, shoot, spoilers, doesn't he reveal that he's the one that murdered Atale? Yes, yes. (laughs) He's like, I want to kill this dude so I can get in there. And you're like, bro. Yeah. What? Very important. So, like, very Iago vibes. Yeah. It's also important to note that at this point, Laodamia is like, I I was ready to marry Atale. I'm ready to do what is necessary for my country. And if the people want Galen to rule, who am I to stand in the way? But also her sister. Like, there's this conflict is also present for her while Sastri is also adding to the stress that she feels. Yeah, she's just between so many rocks and hard places. I think the one hard place that doesn't need to be a hard place is nobody likes Sostrate. No one wants him to be king except for him. Yeah. So it is very funny that it's like all these other interestingly placed chess pieces. And then Sostrate being like, um, but I'm a nice guy and I've loved you forever. So love you back. She's like, um, no. Right, right. No, like, one, no one wants No that. one wants you. <laughs> and he just really, truly does not understand how that could be possible. In a sequence of events, there's a lot of there's a lot of things that um, 
happen in this play. And so we'll just do the brief summary. But in a sequence of events, Nereus finds out about La Damia's secret love for her lover, Gelon. Gelon professes his, his undying love for Nereus. Like, he, he pretty much says, I would rather see this country burn than not marry your sister to Laodamia's face. He's like, I don't really Intense. care about, yeah, He's like, I don't really care about your country's needs at this point. If it means that we can't be together and we truly, truly love each other, then I, I, fine, this country will fall. Which is a little like, bro. <laughs> Laodamia's a little. Totally. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of hot to be like, yes, keep your word, like, love me so much that you're going to like. You'll give up everything for me, but also a little excessive. I think we've we've gotten to the point where like, okay, yeah, you know, yeah, you can find love again, sir, yeah, for sure. And there's a, there's I feel like this play. I mean, we'll also talk about this later, but this play, the women are very much so the voice of reason in here because Gellum mm. goes to Nereus and he tells her all this, and Nereus is like, um, no, like. There's a whole country at war. This is better for the country. Also, this will hurt my sister. I can't do this. And Gellin is like, you're really tearing my heart apart. And she's like, this is tearing me apart. I'm princess of this country. There's a duty to uphold. I'm torn. You're not helping by being like, screw everything. Let's just be together. When there's war at our doors, like he's really not, you would think a soldier who's fought for a country would be like, you know what? Let's follow through. Also, it's not like he won't ever see her again. But Nereus is the one, is the voice of reason here. Which is just really painful for mm. her, too. I know. And beautiful and heartbreaking. Yeah. So all of this is happening while soldiers from the Warren country, from Atali's country, are coming closer and closer to the walls of Epirus. And there's a revolution in the streets because the queen is taking her sweet time. Well, they believe the queen is taking the sweet, her sweet time to decide who will be ruling next to her. And, so, and they just want stability. And they believe a marriage right. will be proof of that. So there is... There's a lot of pressure from the country at large slash just the city outside the castle walls. Because to be fair, she's not going to go fight the war herself. Yeah, exactly. So as a response to all of this, Laodamia exiles Gelen because there's this, his presence here is just like creating so much strife for her, for her sister, for the country, for Sostrait. It's just like a lot. Sostrait doesn't know this and in a fit of rage goes to kill Gelen, but is killed by Gelen instead. He's a good swordsman, you know? He's a pretty, I mean. What do you think was going to happen? Exactly. (laughs) Milo, Sostrit's man that I spoke about earlier, seeks revenge and then goes to attack Gelen. But the queen is like, no, puts her body in front of Gelen and she dies. Tragic. Tragic. Mm. Um, The stakes are super high. There's all, this is happening with a lot of other things as well. And in the end, the only ones left standing are Nereus and Gelen who become king and queen of Epirus. And that's the end. Legacy. I don't know that I've really, you know, talked about the importance of the sisters, but the sisters are truly close. Like you understand throughout this play that the sisters are really, really close. They grew up together. They believe in each other. They support each other. And so when Nereus finds out that her sister is in love with Gellin. There's a lot of warring hearts and conflicting emotions, and both of them are just trying to do what's best for each other and the country. And so I want to emphasize that, that the sisters are really close, and it's a really important relationship in this play. Yeah, and I think that that's, that's one of the, the reasons that this play is so beautiful and enduring and powerful is, you know, I think the men get stuck in their own vision, mm-hmm. like a very specific vision of, okay, Sostrate's like, this is how I want to be king, and this is how I want to do it, this is what I want. And Gellin is like, 
I want to be a lover. This is how I want to do it. This is what I want. Um, but the women in this play, they their hearts are so big. You know, the queen and her sister love each other so much. Mm-hmm. Um, they love their country so much. They love Galen so much. Um, you know, they and they're really trying, they're really trying to have it all. They're really trying to um take care of each other and the country and their hearts and the person they love and you know, really try and be good about everything. I think it really speaks to this sense of, you know, especially today, um, this like conversation about like, can women have it all? Yeah. And, you know, women trying to um, caretake for as as much of their world as possible. She's endlessly trying to do the right thing. I fully agree. And especially with with the conversation that we're having today, at the time that we're recording this, Jacinda Ardern, who is the Prime Minister of New Zealand, announced her retirement in January 2023. Um, and yeah, it's very much so this question of, of, can we do it all? What can we, can women have the power? Can they lead? And I think what Jacinda Ardern can do that Laodamia couldn't do is she could step away and be like, I need to take care of myself. I gave for my country. I gave for duty. And I guess Laodamia does that at the end by dying. That's her act of not self-care because that's so, whoa. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. No, that's her I, act of, I feel you. I feel yeah, you. That's her act of passion. That's her act of acting for herself, mm. right? That's, that's the act she does for herself um, is putting herself in between the arrow that was meant for Galan and his body. Um, and that's, it speaks to how, you know, especially at a time when this is happening in this play, this is happening in, you know, old Greece, antiquity time Greece, um, that women didn't really have, especially women in power, there weren't a lot of avenues for them. It was, you are a representative of your country and that's who you are. Like when you're reading a play by a woman in the 1600s, which is so cool that this play is so early that, you know, I think Catherine Bernard is trying to balance that very patriarchal. She can only be in this lane. She's so boxed in. Laudemi is so boxed in. Yeah. Um, and yet, you know, she is trying to to balance all these things, all these roles. And people encourage her like, well, you should get what you want. You should have your love. You should be able to crown whoever you want. But like the reality is way more complicated than that. Um, For sure. And so I think it's so cool that she represents that thoughtfully. I think one of the moments where she kind of goes sister before country is when she exiles Gellin. But then Mm. again, that Mm. has immediate repercussions and Sastre, you know, Sastre creates all this chaos. Um, Well, but she also exiles him because like the whole riot is so like, now we want Gellin, we want Gellin. Right, exactly. If he's not going to freaking marry her because of her sister, then it's like, you can't be stirring up all this crazy. You, it's like Beatlemania for Gellin. Oh, it's Beatlemania. But no, I <laughs> well, hear I'm you. Not I, like hear hip. You. I don't know about like but Harry again, Styles yeah. and whatever. <laughs> I would say, yeah, Harry Styles is a pretty accurate representation of Gellin. Gellin is basically uh, Harry Styles. That's what much. we've learned. But yeah, that's exactly what I'm, my point is. Like All of her acts are queen first, other things second. Mm. And if she can meld those together, sure. But the when she puts her body in between the arrow and Gellon, that's the first time that she is not queen. If she was acting as her with her stature, she would not have done that. She wouldn't even have left the castle walls, I don't think. But it's the, you know, that's her sacrifice is the true, is the one true um, event, 
an action that is kind of just for her. Yeah. Although the other thing, too, that I love about this in sort of that, like, you know, the Greek tragedy reference of it all is she has given herself this Achilles heel. Like, mm. Galen was around and she was like, I can't take it. I am so into this dude, but I have to marry this gross dude because of this treaty. Um, So to get over the fact that I can't have this man, I'm going to set up him and my sister. So she also, like, brought some of this situation on herself, which is such a, like, Greek classic. Bringing upon your own drama or downfall is such a typically Greek setup that I think it's just so interesting that she has also placed, in terms of sort of the chess match of it all, she's set up herself to have this, like, very tough and heartbreaking situation. Um, I also, in terms of, like, reasons we love this play... I want to talk about the language of it. The yeah. language of this play is so gorgeous. There's so many monologues. It's this beautiful verse play. I The translation is awesome, actually. I think it would probably be really challenging to translate French verse into English verse. Yeah. And I feel like our the translation we found is super successful at that. I would agree. I would find, I find the, um, I find the language in this, English version to be very close to what I know to be French verse. It's full mm. of nuance and imagery and these characters are kind of really truly speaking from the heart, which is why I think we love these classical um, theater pieces is because they kind of put into words the crazy emotions that we have in our bodies. And I think Catherine Bernard does that really well with Laodamia. It's just this there's so much going on for these main characters that she's able to put in this. And I think that's truly beautiful. As I was reading it, waiting for somebody at dinner, and they, when they showed up, I was like, oh, my God. And they were like, what are you reading? And I was like, no, I just found out. I just found out he died. Don't worry. I, sorry. I'm in this. Yeah. yeah. Um, but then every single act, it's like, oh, shit, what? Yeah, I definitely felt with this play. That you're in it, like someone, it 100% feels like someone is like, oh my God, like this is happening, this just happened and blah, blah, blah. And you're on the edge of your seat the whole time because none of it is expected, especially the end. Yeah. It's like thing after another thing where you're like, no, oh, ah, and you're really just in it with everybody and you're feeling it. And I will also just say, throwing this in, um, there's a lot of great language. It's a small cast and there's only one place that you have to make. Oh my gosh, how producible. I know. How producible play this is. No one changes costumes. Oh yeah. There isn't any, you know, very easily producible play. And if you want to do it in a black box, why not? Many options. Please. Indeed. Um, so I want to throw in, I, so I, we read this play and I just fell in love with the play itself. Um, and I wasn't thinking, like, is this historically accurate? Like, are these real people? I didn't care. I was just, like, so in the thing. Right. But as we came to, like, prep for the podcast, I was like, I wonder, if, is this real? Are these real places? What's happening? Um, so I, I went down a little Google dive. And uh, turns out Laudamia is probably, okay, so I think Laudamia was a real person. Um, it seems like she was, although she, was. she also goes by Daydamia, um, D-E-I-D-A-M-I-A, the second, who was in fact queen, um, in 233 BC. So, um, both Epirus and Atolia are real, were real places in what is now Greece. 
Um, so this is all, this is like, the whole story is like history adjacent. Her sister Nereus did marry Gelen or Gelo of Syracuse. Cute. But she went off to Syracuse. So they were not hanging out in Epirus. Or at least, if so, it was not for very long. But also, like, Laodemia is part of a bunch of Greek myths. She was part of this Greek myth that's mentioned in the Iliad where she has a kid with Zeus. Mm-hmm. Um, but then sometimes it's some other guy that she had a kid with, Xanthus. Uh, or there's one where she's like shot by Artemis one day while she's weaving for some reason. And one where she was married to Protocelus, who died in the Trojan War. And she was so sad that he died there that she committed suicide. There's a story of Laodamia being the wife to King Arcus, where she was like one of the daughters of Sparta. So that one seems to turn out better. A lot of these are kind of sad stories. There's also one where she's the wife of Anticlus, who hid in the Trojan horse. And he was the one guy who, when Helen was like trying to test the Trojan horse, would be like, oh, I sound like all your wives. Oh, I sound like Laodamia now. Apparently, uh, her husband, Anticles, wanted to be like, oh, Laodamia, I love you. And I think uh, one of them like had to shut him up, basically. <laughs> so they didn't give it away. So, you know, there are some positive endings in, in Greek myths to Laodamia's story. But tracking back to the sort of like real life history version, um, where she was queen for like a year and a half, sad face. <laughs> it was it was like not a very long reign, but it does seem like there was a rebellion, a riot there in Epirus. And in by some accounts, Nereus sent her mercenaries. She and Gelen were like, sure, have these have these folks to fight on your account. And but also in some accounts, she was in fact murdered by Mylan, not Milo. But There are also accounts that say that this is all conflated and like, you know, the Greek myths and the queen and the, you know, that it's all being misread. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of question marks. You know, this is not a highly, highly documented time. If if anyone finds some primary sources, let us know. But yeah, I just think it's fun to be like, you know, clearly Catherine Bernard knew a lot of these myths, knew some history. The French are weirdly obsessed with Greek myths. Um, mm. Yeah, there are a few authors that wrote a lot about Greek There's Pierre Corneille, who's a French author and playwright who wrote about Greek myth. There's Jean Racine, who wrote a few. They were before her time. They were before Catherine Bernard's time. But they were, you know, Phaedra, Andromachus, Ephigenia. Right. There's a lot of like stories there for some reason. I don't know why the French were. I think it's because of the um, romance of it. Mm. They were a little bit intrigued by the, the power of the Greek myths. Well, you can definitely tell by this play that the French are romantics. It's exciting to know that these plays also have some basis in history, that these sort of stories, I think this also speaks to why it's a classic, is that these stories clearly come back time and time again. The fact that we're still talking about it in 2023 is quite impressive. It actually, in a way, reminds me of another play on our list, Las Pascualas, where there is this myth, um, you know, that's taking on this Chilean myth about women and their experience of love and loss. And I think it's really interesting that, like, Catherine Bernard has taken on this story of a real-life woman who did have riots and was under very, you know, intense pressure and really humanizes her and makes makes us understand how this could have happened in such a much more dynamic 
probably honest and heartfelt way that kind of um, shifts our understanding of the myth, our understanding of the story, and and is giving, you know, as we want to and expand the canon, giving these women their their legacy back. History. Oh my gosh, Shannon, I'm so excited to hear what we know about Catherine Bernard. Tell give me give me your bio. What what you got? So Catherine Bernard, or Catherine Bernard, if you want to be really particular about it, was a late 17th century French writer who wrote a number of novels, poems, and plays throughout her lifetime. Special fact, she was the most successful female playwright of the 17th century. And I want to say, because we said female playwright, I want to maybe say that she was the most successful playwright of the 17th century. Um, Wait, do we know if that's like in France or just like total? In France. In France. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, in France. Because I, I was yeah. going to be like, Afro Ben has some shit to say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In France. Thank you for that <laughs> distinction. Um, she's perhaps best known for setting the aesthetic foundation for the French fairy tale genre with her central tenet that the adventures should always be implausible and the emotions always natural, which is really fun that she, you know, she tried to root true emotion in these fantastical um, settings. And that kind of echoes with like this play too. Like the amount of roller coaster is, is not implausible definitely, but like is challenging, but the emotions are definitely natural. So. What's particularly notable about Bernard's work as a playwright is the fact that she focused on writing tragedies as well as fairy tales. In in 17th century France, it was considered scandalous for a woman to write tragedy, yet she did so to great success. I also want to know, I mean, I talked about this last season, but the French considered a lot of things scandalous, according to women. And like (laughs) I said last time, women, it was illegal for women to wear pants until 2015. It was a law in our constitution that said that women could not wear pants. We did. So bananas. But isn't that insane? Isn't that absolutely insane? I think the whole, like, it's scandalous to write tragedy is interesting, too, you know? And I wonder why that started. Um, Maybe that's another deep dive we could do someday. But it's also interesting to reflect now on the whole, like, rom-com culture. Like, women, women like stories where good things happen to them. Oh, no. Like... Yeah, okay. Apparently it was also scandalous for us to tell stories where they didn't. So I totally agree. I think I mean, why there's a whole time in the world where women couldn't be exposed to war and sad things because we were we had a gentle nature and can be exposed to the realities of life. And I think that's why it was scandalous for women to write about tragedy because we were pure and had to remain untainted by the horrors of life. Clearly, we were very much affected by the horrors of life, but moving on. (laughs) Um, What? Yeah, it's important to note. um, Emily, you posted this. You shared this. Oh, yeah. This is so interesting. Like, we don't, because we don't know that much about her, some of her life. Right. There isn't, like, birth dates and, and stuff like that. She was pretty kind of private. Yeah. And also, it seemed um, that she... Like, some of her history maybe got erased. That, like, she was born to this wealthy family, and so we knew she was born in 1662, and they were Protestants. But Catholicism was dominant in France at the time. Mm -hmm. And when Catherine Bernard converted, she became Catholic, like, at 23. Yeah, at age 23, she um, converted. And she was removed from her family's baptism list. So they were like, uh, so maybe we would have known more about her, but I don't know. Um, but so one of the 
fascinating things um, that we do know, though, like, again, she was rich, so she was presumably well-educated, but when she was 18 is when she published her first novel. That's very impressive. And it's also incredible because her novels were and plays and everything were super successful and to be successful at such a young age so early is super impressive but she relied primarily on the money she received from competitive uh, from competitions and from noble patrons in the court of louis the 14th to survive writing was um, i mean especially for women but as we know writing acting all of that stuff wasn't always the most lucrative position for anyone mm. um so she her, it didn't bring her a large amount of wealth um but she so she existed in a precarious state at court because she depended only on the goodwill of her patrons so this impacted the trajectory of her writing and she had to steer clear of any nonfiction, satire and poetry that saw many writers of her time exiled right yeah this yeah. explains why she leaned so hard into the fairy tale genre throughout her career you know it's easy to talk about and to make fun of people when you're like this is just a fairy tale right yeah that like cover and that's something that kind of shakespeare did too is he'd be like oh i'm not making this political commentary it's about someone else yeah it's exactly like, mm. um but that's such a good point that she she had so much patronage that she had to be careful also because she never married yeah she lived alone she was a single lady yeah whole life she, she moved from um rouen which is in uh, in france to paris um by herself and then yeah just lived alone which is kind of like a big deal to to travel. I mean, so far. She traveled kind of far. Um, I think in the 1600s, yeah. Yeah. So she moved from Rouen to Paris by herself in the 1600s and was like, I'm going to rely on my work to make money. Um, her two most notable plays were this one, where Laodamia first performed in 1689 and Brutus uh, performed one year later in France. Okay, so speaking of rabbit holes, um, I did a little bit of Googling. I found this article. There are a couple of really interesting articles um, about Brutus specifically and how it's been wrongly attributed to this guy who's, uh, whose first name is Bernard. So like maybe that's maybe. part of it, but yeah. probably not. Um, Bernard de Beauvoir de Fontenelle. Bernard maybe? de Beauvier de Fontenelle. Thank you. Thank yep. you, Shannon. Um, a resident French speaker. Um, shout out to Professor Nina Eckstein for writing an article unpacking all this. Um, one of the reasons this got attributed to this other Bernard, who's a man, is that Voltaire wrote a play also called Brutus, like, years later. And it got mixed reviews. And so then they started, like, reviving. They were like, oh, we should look back at that one really good version of Brutus. And so they started republishing it. And he had also maybe, you know, mm -hmm. I haven't read his version, whatever. We read Lady Plays. But supposedly he'd, like, borrowed kind of a lot. I mean, it's also history. Everything's vague. But sure, sure, sure. Mm. I'm sure he was super excited when people were like, mm, your play's not great. Let's do this one again. <laughs> right? But it's so interesting because at the time, like, when when our plays were reviewed, um, Brutus got a really great review and someone wrote, uh, quote, women today are capable of anything after seeing it. I was like, ah, well, yeah, women always. But sure. Um, yes, yes, they are. But it's so interesting that, like, it is another one of these cases where a man, I think um, because 
I'm going to butcher that. The other male Bernard, who mm-hmm. um, is sometimes attributed to this play, um, I think he basically was telling Voltaire, like, no. Um, and it's too bad that, like, once again, a woman's work is subsumed by, oh, well, because he referenced it or because he um, thought Voltaire's play was not so great, um, that clearly he must have written this excellent edition because he wrote other stuff. No, no, give women their legacies. Truly, give us our due. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's not like she didn't work hard for it, right? And even if she hadn't, she did it. So give her her due. Oh, the other thing that's cool is I think both Laudamia and Brutus were both produced at La Comédie Française and were like huge successes. Which is a big deal because La Comédie Française is touted to this day to be, you know, kind of the epitome of French theater. And to be, if you are part of La Comédie Française, you are, you know, you are this touted author and playwright who's really helped you represent France in a way. And we know the French have a strong nationalism and we really love our literature and we believe in our words. So to be a part of La Comédie Française or to have something done there is a really big deal. You know, maybe this is a good like switch over to um, the Académie Française, which I know you know a little more about, but I know that she was rejected from the Académie Française because of her gender. So rude. Yeah, the Académie Française. So in the, in the spirit of the French just making a lot of institutions for um, French stuff, <laughs> which is actually super true, we have like a bunch of departments and ministers. L'Académie Française is a French institution that was created to cement and enforce the rules of the French language and continue to elevate it to a high standard. French has always been a language that's like changed a lot because different regions have different, had different ways of saying words, had different ways of writing it. And so once um, the French started gaining power towards the early Middle Ages, and French started to be a language that was spoken by more people, they were really like, okay, let's set some rules so that we can live up to the power that we're gaining. Because French was being touted as a language that was close to Latin. And as we know, because of the Bible, Latin was really a language of the wealthy, of the educated, and French was getting up there. And so they created l'Académie Française. And they instituted the French dictionary, and every time something changes in the French language, it goes through l'Académie Française. So there was a mm. point in time where there was something spelled with a PH, and it was changed to an F. And people were like, what is this? Like, younger people were like, sure. <laughs> Older people were like, no, this is, you know, this is diminishing the integrity of the French language. Because if you've ever tried to learn French or write in French, you know that there's rules of French make no sense sometimes. You're just like, why are there so many letters for this sound? I will say English is kind of the same. But l'Académie Française really tries to um, stay true to the French values and to the traditionalism of the French language. And to be part of the Academy as an author of any kind is proof that you're a valued contributor to the French language. So for Catherine Bernard to not be accepted in l'Académie Française. And there were, you know, there were just a bunch of sexist men too who were traditionalist and very set in their ways at the time. Just speaks to the reluctance to accept a woman of her caliber into their ranks. But instead, she's like, well, I don't know exactly what she's sh- did. Yeah. <laughs> but instead, she's like, all right, whatever. You're not going to include me. I'm going to go join this Italian one, the Academy di Ricorvati di Padua. 
if if they won't include you in wherever you are, go find where you are accepted because you deserve it. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the French, you know, made a mistake and that's on them. Bernard wrote a series on top of the plays and the poems and the novels that she wrote. Bernard wrote a series of four novellas titled Les Malheurs de l'Amour, which translate to The Misfortunes of Love, which included Inès de Cordoue. She introduces the series, explaining... I see so much disorder in even the most reasonable love that I thought it would be better to present to the public image of misfortunes coming from this passion than to show virtuous, gentle lovers happy at the end of the book. Which is so interesting um, because in this, in this book, in Inès de Cordoue, it provided commentary on the confining nature of marriage for women, like chosen marriage, which we also see in Laodamia. Um, and it's frequently used to argue that fairy tales were created by educated women rather than peasants because they spoke about women's experience. Yeah. And there's also, you know, one thing we don't love doing um, here at Expand the Canon is like putting any labels to, to, to people that they wouldn't have used themselves. But there is kind of an interesting article with some conjecture about like, was Catherine Bernard potentially asexual? Or, you know, because there's no record of her having any relationship. She never gets married. She lives alone. Um, and I guess usually there's some kind of record of oh, well, she was seen a lot with this person or, um, you know, oh, she was really good friends mm -hmm. in quotes, with someone. Um, but really, and again, we don't know that much about her. So again, it's sort of conjecture, but it's interesting to hear from her own um, interpretation of like even the most reasonable love brings, brings misfortune, brings sort of these really hard twists of fate. And so it's interesting to just wonder, like, is that something she just observed? Has she been in love and deeply hurt? I mean, guessing based on this play, based on Laodamia, like the nuanced understanding she has of, of that sense of sacrifice, of love, of devotion. You know, I think it's just interesting to think about what was what was her experience of that. And, you know, as we're seeing the political commentary within this, too, what was what was her and what were women's experiences of love, devotion and and marriage at this time? Here is a recording from our film scene from Catherine Bernard's Laudamia, performed by Sky Pagan and directed by me, Emily Lyon. Alas, shall I confess? What can I hide when I see the climax of my woes approaching? You know my great affection for Nereus. But soon, oh gods, Gelin shall wed this sister, and Gelin is secretly lord of my heart. My father, Alexander's final treaty, mandates my loveless marriage to Atale. I must fulfill his absolute decree. A thousand reasons of the state further require it. My crown is shaky. My people are rebellious, already worn out with a cruel war. The interests to the throne to which I'm chained make this cruel marriage a necessity. But my heart rebels and fights incessantly against a father's will, reasons of state. Alas, how happy we would be, Argyra, if always dangerous passions were required to wait, at least before they should arise until an eager lover showed his ardor. But oft, the spark that dominates our hearts precedes the signs that should kindle our love. Such is my involuntary love for Gelin. 
No sign of hope ever graced this secret torment. Meanwhile, I saw that he loved no one else. He might yet turn his preference toward me. My heart with eagerness seized on a hope so false, so insubstantial, and dazzled by the charm of a vain error, erected a strong barrier to my duty. To rid me of this error that my weakness cherished, I arranged a match between Gelin and the princess. How hard I tried! I thought, harsh on myself, that love is cured as soon as it turns hopeless. My trying to make them fall in love succeeded too well. My rivals are the prophets, alas. This love I fostered has grown to such excess. It took no more to rob me of all hope. I thought their love would cure me of my own and find myself obsessed with jealous sorrow. <laughs> what a remedy for love. Thank you again to Sky Pagan and Emily Lyon Winkwink, our director of photography, Jenny DeRosier, and sound designer, Stephanie Coriatis, production stage manager, Jessica Fournier. You can find this scene and more on our Instagram page. And thank you to Kalina Ko, who's another curator for Expand the Canon, for the dramaturgy used in this episode. A special thank you to Stephen Beck for his editing prowess on this episode of This is a Classic. Thank you for joining us for this episode of This is a Classic, the Expand the Canon podcast. Learn more at expandthecanon.com. If you believe in the importance of expanding the canon, please give us a five-star review and subscribe to this podcast. And then hit the share button and forward it along to a friend, a colleague, professor. For info on what's up next, you can follow us on Instagram. At Hedgepig Ensemble Theater. Facebook. Slash Hedgepig Ensemble Theater. Or join our mailing list at hedgepigensemble.org. You can also support this effort by donating at the link in the comments below. Again, I'm Emily. And I'm Shannon. Ciao. Thanks.